Good morning. Good morning. Okay, a few announcements uh, very quick. First, I want to welcome visitors uh, Jenna and Caleb who've uh, driven down from Indiana. Indiana, nine hours just to be with us here today. So make sure they're, they're welcomed. Glad you're here today. Uh, and um, I want to let uh, people know I was in Sarasota, Florida last week doing a seminar for the Samaritan Counseling Group. And I want to have our new friends online from Sarasota. Uh, very well received this perspective about God and how it applies to our life. Uh, really uh, did, did, I guess, uh, five, five talks down there for them and really positively received. And then I also want to thank all of our friends online and locally who went online and uh, put a nice review on The Remedy on Amazon. It was uh, really humbling to read all the positive things that people have been saying about, about the New Testament paraphrase. So thank you for that. Let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that your spirit will join us, enlighten us, draw us together in the unity of your love. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we're doing lesson number three in the uh, study guide, the gospel in Galatians. And the title is The Unity of the Gospel. And the memory verse is from Philippians 2.2, which reads, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And from this memory verse, what is the one thing from this verse that we are to be united upon? Love. This is exactly right. Love. We must come to the truth about God's character of love, his methods of love, how love works. This is the unity that the Bible is calling us to. So, so can someone quickly give me a summation of how does love function? Other seeking. Other seeking. Unselfishly. Beneficent. Giving. Outward moving. Meaning we always give what people want. <laughs> What's best for them. And you think about, did you... Every prayer you ever asked God for, did you get what you asked for? No, he loves us too much to give us most of the stuff we ask for. (laughs) Because I know when I was a kid growing up, I asked for a lot of stuff that probably wouldn't have been good for me. Okay? So, no, he, and that's the same thing on our principles as we deal with people. I get lots of requests from people to do things that wouldn't necessarily be helpful for them. And I, and I counsel a lot of people that are struggling in work, work environment. Good hearted people often have a hard time saying no. Somebody can ask you for help. Can you help me? I want, I want to give you this idea in your mind. Actually, before you do anything, think, what is the most helpful thing for them? For me to, say, take on a task and do it for them? Or for me maybe to coach them? Give them some wisdom, give them some encouragement, but leave the task on their shoulders to carry out. How, how does someone grow if you do the work for them? Yeah. Yes, if, if you have somebody struggling with math problems, it's perfectly proper to show them how to work problems. But it's not proper just to give them the answers. You've got to, they've got to work the problems. If they never work them, they never grow in their ability to handle problems. That Life is a series of problems to be solved. And so we have to sometimes... So Sometimes good-hearted people see somebody struggling, they're crying, they're, they're in pain, they're really hurting, and you want to relieve it, so let me do that for you. If your wife had... Had, had knee surgery and, and she's doing physical therapy and she's crying because it hurts the first week after surgery, do you say, oh, sweetheart, move over. Let me do that for you. <laughs> that doesn't help. So that's a principle of love. Love does what's best for other people, not what they want necessarily, or not even necessarily what relieves pain in the moment. 
The first paragraph in the lesson says, Protestant reformer John Calvin believed that disunity and division were the devil's chief devices against the church, and he warned that Christians should avoid schism like the plague. Schism over what? Well, read the next, let's look at the next two paragraphs. But should unity be preserved at the cost of truth? Imagine if Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, had, in the name of unity, chosen to recant his views on salvation by faith alone when he was brought to the trial at the Diet of Worms. Had the reformer yielded a single point, Satan and his hosts would have gained the victory. But his unwavering firmness was the means of emancipating the church and beginning a new era, a new and better era. What does it mean to not compromise on the truth? Does it mean that we must be unified on the facts? On the right interpretations of scripture? That, that we can't, we cannot compromise on this interpretation. The ten horns mean this and we can't compromise on that. We cannot compromise on right doctrines. It, 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 truth means to have the right doctrines. Or the right definitions. This is what we can't compromise, right definition. Or how about the right fundamental beliefs? We have to have the right 28. Or the right rituals. We must baptize in the right ritualistic way. Who's to say what's right? Who's to say what's right? But we have to study the scripture, and the scripture will give us the answers, and then we get those right answers, then we must be unified, and we all must come to an agreement. We must have one creed, one code, one unified list of things we attest to. Is, is that what unity is? Well, before I get to the historical evidence, let's break down some, this with some very straightforward questions. Straightforward questions that will cut through this and help you have clarity on what unity is and is not. When Jesus returns in the clouds of glory and we are transformed into our glorified bodies and we're dead in Christ or rise first and we're on our way up to meet him in the air, as the Bible says, at that moment of his return, will there be any human sinner who has been saved amongst the saved? Who knows correctly every detail of the Bible? No. There's some that don't even know the Bible. Thank you. Well, so, so get your mind around what you just said. We are not saved by knowing all the facts correctly. Having all the details right. Having the, the definitions of the doctrines properly elucidated and written down. That's not what saves us. In fact, w- will there be many people saved who have some of the facts wrong? Yes. But what will there be a common element that all of the saved have in common? Some element that all the saved do have. Will there be some element there? What is it? Love. Okay? All the saved will have been changed in heart such that love has replaced selfishness and honesty and integrity have replaced deceitfulness and survival drives. Think what we do when we try to survive. When we're afraid of getting caught, we lie, we deceive, we obfuscate, we blame. That will be gone. The saved will all have hearts that love God and others and are honesty. So the scripture says there will be no deceit in heaven. There will be no selfishness in heaven. This is the common thread. That doesn't mean there won't be any misunderstandings, confusion, uh, false ideas of, of uh, facts that, you know what, I thought that this is the way, um, you know, uh, molecules bound together. Oh no, that's not how they bind. They bind this way. You don't have to have that right to be saved. So 
so if you understand that the, the issue that brings unity is a change of heart, what is the avenue that, that, we, that, that brings that about? And, and I'm just, really, this is a quick summation of old stuff because I want to get into the lesson, but I want you to see this clearly. Lies believed break the circle of love and trust, Remember? And when love and trust is broken, we have fear and selfishness in the heart. And fear and selfishness lead to acts of self-preservation, which are destructive to ourselves, our relationships, our characters. Okay, that's, that's the, the, the destructive cascade. The healing cascade starts with the opposite. Lies believe broke the circle of love and trust. What restores love and trust? Truth. truth. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth about what? The, that's the question you should be asking. The truth about what? We're going to come to that in just a moment. But truth believed destroys the lies and wins us to trust. In trust, we open the heart. I trust you, God. I see who you really are. I see your amazing character. I see you're for me, not against me. I see your methods and character. I trust you. You open the heart. The Spirit takes all of Christ's achieved and reproduces in us. This is being born again. This is being renewed in the inner man. This is having the law written on the heart and mind. We're transformed with love and trust. Love and trust cast out fear and selfishness. I'm not afraid. I trust. And love and trust then leads to, instead of acts of selfishness, it leads to acts of giving, acts of service, acts of love, acts of righteousness. And acts of righteousness and love and service witness the kingdom of love and help us grow in godliness. Do you see the reverse cascade? But what's the key? What's the linchpin to enter that healing cascade? The truth. Trust, which is based on the truth. We don't trust people we don't know. We don't trust people we believe lies about. We trust the trustworthy and God is trustworthy so the truth about him wins us to trust that's the key but step before that is a willingness to take in truth well we have to be willing to learn I mean you, you can talk to someone who believes the earth is flat all day long right. if they're not willing to believe that the earth is a sphere application of truth you know the presentation of truth is, is meaningless so, but that's still the first cascade if they're not willing to partake of the truth then they can't enter the healing cascade right so yes, you have to have a willingness, but then you still also have to have the truth. So it's still connected there, but you're right. You have to have the heart. And that's why those who are lost in Thessalonians, they're lost because they did not love the truth and let's be saved. In other words, they didn't have an attitude that said, hey, you know what? I'm a finite being. I don't know everything, but I have a heart that loves truth. I want to grow in the truth. I want to advance in the truth. I want to comprehend the truth. I want to, to have greater insights into what reality and truth are every day, as earliest as I can comprehend it. That's what I want. That's my heart. That they love the truth. Whereas, I know the truth. Don't confuse me with facts. <laughs> okay? Which is what you're saying. So with this in mind, though, I'm going to show you a subtle deception. A subtle deception which the church has practiced for a millennia. Even, this, even our church, which has only been around 150 years, is still practicing. Here's the subtle truth. Because the core truth, what's the core truth that heals and sets free? The truth about God. But what happens when we substitute as the primary truth that heals, that sets free, we substitute the truth about God with another truth, not with a lie, another truth. And we make that the core truth. Is there a problem with that? Let me give you an example. What if we substitute the, the, the main issue is coming to the truth about God's character methods of love with, say, something like this, the truth about baptism by immersion, that we must be baptized by immersion. Sprinkling does not count. And we, and we go to great lengths to prove the historical Greek baptismo means immerse, and, and we can make the, the case that, yes, in fact, it is true that the biblical baptism was immersion of baptism by immersion, and that, and that, we, that, that if we t- deviate from God's instructions 
in the least. He has no tolerance for that. Adam and Eve deviated by simply eating a piece of fruit. He had no tolerance. Out the garden, now they're going to condemn to die. Uzzah deviated by touching an ark. Boom, wiped down, dead. If you deviate from the least by not being baptized by immersion, you cannot be saved. And we've got a truth, a truth that baptism in Bible, baptism is baptism by immersion. But we've substituted the core truth. God's character methods of love, design law truth, with a truth about a procedure, a ritual, a symbol. It is true, that's the symbol. But we've created a falsehood. As we've described it, we've created an arbitrary God. We've created a God that, in fact, when you, I want you to see the consequence. When you put truths like that, and you, I could stack up a whole bunch of them. Day of worship. Mm-hmm. Stack up a whole bunch of them. Put that truth as a central truth. Then suddenly we are fearful, well, did I do it right? Did I get my TV off before sunset? Did the water come above my knee? <laughs> you, you see, some of you guys know what I'm talking about. And, and what happens is we live in fear. We're, and, and we're not trusting God. The heart doesn't open. We don't experience, experience the indwelling spirit. We're not transformed in the other person. Why? Because we're holding to truths that have displaced the central truth. It's a very subtle deception. Yes. So the central truth obviously would unify us and we refuse it. But is it part of our human nature? Like why, why are we so insistent, for instance, to start preaching to people who go to church on Sunday about the truth about sadness when it, it doesn't matter? Why do we want to do that? Okay, so what, what, is, what happened when Adam and Eve sinned? They ran and hid because they were afraid. The state of being out of harmony with God causes us to live in a state of fear and insecurity. Do we like fear and insecurity? We want fear and insecurity to go away. So there are methods to make fear and insecurity go away and guilt and shame to go away. There are methods. There's godly methods, which are restoration to his design. Repentance is not confession. Repentance is change of heart. That's healing. Okay? Restoration to his design. When you are restored to his design, live harmony with him, you have peace with God. The fear goes away. But there's another way to make the fear and the guilt go away. Denial and distortion. It wasn't me. It was the woman you gave me. You didn't put her in the garden. She never, I didn't do anything. It's her fault. Denial, distortion. If we deny truth, I didn't do anything wrong. There's no reason for me to feel guilty. But unconsciously, we still know something's wrong. And so we cause a tension internal to ourselves. And you see this in people all the time. They're not at peace with themselves. They're not at peace with God. How do they find peace? They find peace in rule keeping. They become very fastidious. I see this in, un, in un, non-Bible spiritual related things. People with certain types of personality defense mechanisms find their internal peace. They feel, they feel disordered. They feel insecure. They fear rejection. They, they're not at peace with themselves. And how do they cope with that? By fastidious orderliness in their, in their house. Everything has to be in its place. Nothing can be out of, out of, out of, out of order. Everything's lined up. Their, their, their t-shirts are all rolled up and lined up in a row. I mean, everything is just ordered. They bring order, it brings peace. They get, they find peace in rule keeping. And this is why people get very upset. I've kept the rules. And when you're at level four and below thinking, if you think about this, if I'm on base, you can't tag me out. <laughs> and so the security is not because I have a new heart. I know I don't have a new heart. My heart's not new. In fact, my, my religion tells me you're not going to get a new heart. You don't get a new heart. You live in sin up until Christ comes. There's no victory. 
You just keep sinning, but don't worry. They've all been put on Christ. He's paid the legal penalty. If you claim the legal debt, then you're safe. You can't be tugged out. But you do have to keep the rules because he doesn't tolerate rebelliousness. And if you're not keeping the rules, then you're not on base and he can tag you out. That's why we have to keep the Sabbath because you're not keeping the Sabbath, you're breaking the rules. And if you're breaking the rules, you get tugged out. Doesn't matter the condition of your heart, you get out. This is why it happens. Yes. The question is internal peace or internal security? Both. They don't have real peace. They have a false peace based on a distortion, but it avoids the immediate angst that they would have to face if they take ownership. This is why people who've done wrong often resist repentance because to admit repentance, it brings one to a place of serious conviction and soul searching where we don't like the wickedness in us. We've all who've repented have been there and most of us have resisted that initially because we didn't want to have to admit it. I didn't want to admit I was wrong. So, we are to be united. The unity is not unity of a list of creeds or doctrines or attestations or rituals. It's a unity of heart, a unity of character, where we love others more than self. This is the unity. So let's give some historical evidence now. They talked about Martin Luther. Where Martin Luther's protestations, where the word Protestant, he's a protester, comes from, primarily focused on doctrines, or were his 95 theses examples of evidences to point out another problem. When a doctor identifies a constellation of symptoms, fever, cough, chills, elevated white blood count, constellation of symptoms, is he doing this as those isolated symptoms are the problem, or does that list of symptoms point out another problem? Yes. An underlying problem. I'm suggesting to you the 95 thesis are evidence of an underlying problem. What is the underlying problem? that the 95 Thesis that Luther tacked to the wall exposed. Well, he he tacked 95 Thesis, all of them, if you look at them, undermine trust in God. Trust in God is undermined by the teachings he was challenging. Why? Because he exposed the method of the institutional church. The method of the institutional church are not the methods of God. The method of the institutional church was falsehood. They used a lot of falsehood. Keeping truth away from the masses. It was in Latin and you couldn't get it. You had to go to the priest and the priest would tell you what the Bible said, but you couldn't get it on your own. Keep truth away from the masses. Coercion. If you don't, and you remember they used to preach by going around and telling, if you don't give a, a, a donation, then, then you're going to burn in hell. Bribes, manipulation, fear, survival exploitation. These are the methods of the institutional church. They're not the methods of God. Therefore, those methods, when practiced, and if you remember his experience, crawling up the steps in Rome, kissing every step because he felt so horrible and was so afraid of being punished that he had to do all these works to try and influence God not to kill him, he realized this is ridiculous. Something is wrong here. Because those types of methods do not win people to love and trust. You cannot win. In fact, they harden hearts against God. They shut down and they destroy individuality. So, as evidence that Martin Luther was right, that those types of methods when practiced by churches don't call Christians, cause Christians, bring Christians to be more like Christ, let's look at history, historical evidence. Christians who practiced the methods and believed in a system of appeasement, and the whole system that Martin Luther protested, 
went to the Crusades with crosses emblazoned and slaughtered hundreds of thousands, millions. Inquisitions, burning people at the stake. You don't believe like me, we will burn you at the stake. Mafia, run mafia organizations, doing all the criminal things mafia organizations do, but then they would go to mass, have their kids baptized, and do all, and do all the things to support the church. What? Is there a disconnect here for anybody? How about this? Attack, murder, exploit, and deceive the American Indian. And then go to church every Sunday and sing hymns and call the American Indian savages. Do you understand, if you look at the history of America, that the primary people going out and giving smallpox blankets to wipe out entire indigenous people would sing hymns every Sunday about their belief in God. How could they do that? Onward, Christian soldiers. Let's be like Jesus. Do you see Jesus doing that to the indigenous people? How about one million Tutsis murdered by Hutus in Rwanda? Primary killing zones, churches. These are all Christians of every denominational flavor. And remember, 28% of that nation, Seventh-day Adventists, I believe, was the stat. And they were convicted, along with the Roman Catholics and the other Protestants, with, with genocide. How could that be? When they researched it, they found that method of baptism, method of communion, day of worship, believing in a heavenly sanctuary, all that stuff had no bearing on who participated in the killing or not. There was one common denominator that all those participating in the killing had, and all those who hid the refugees had a different. And that was, if you believe in an authoritarian, punishing God, you participated in the killing. If you believe in a benevolent God of love, you protected refugees, regardless of denomination. What is the unity we're working on here? It's a unity of heart. Did the Pharisees in Christ's day have wrong doctrines about which day of the week was the Sabbath? God as creator, the inspiration of scripture, which foods were on the permitted list, paying tithe, who could serve as a priest? Did they have any wrong doctrinal interpretation of any of those? How about, did they have the right view of God? Did they have God's methods in their hearts? Were they united with heaven in carrying out the kingdom of heaven on earth? So is it most important, when we talk about unity, to get our doctrines right? Or is it most important to get our understanding about God right and his methods? And once we understand God and his methods, then we might be in a safer place to start forming some doctrines. Would it even be a good test of your doctrines if you took every one of your doctrines and say, this is what I believe to be true. If it's true, what, what, does, what kind of person would God be? Amen. Would that be a good test? It really is. It's very, very insightful. If you start doing that, you will find some of the doctrines that, that are taught in Christianity make God out to be a sadistic monster. And he's untrustworthy. So there's something wrong with the doctrine. There's not something wrong with God. There's something wrong with the doctrine. Can we, do you think we can have a healthy belief system if it's based on independent, standalone doctrines? We line up the doctrines like dominoes. We, we proof text them to death. We have 300 different Bible references to prove this is the right doctrine. But that doctrine stands by itself disconnected from what it says about God. This is traditional creeds. This is traditional fundamental beliefs. We stand them up and we prove them. But we don't ever ask the question, what does it say about God? If it's true, what kind of being is he? Why is there such an emphasis on doctrines? 
Level four and below thinkers. That's that law and order. And when you're law and order, you actually think it matters if you get the right definition or not. If you do the ritual in the right way or not. We'll unpack this more as we go into the further lessons. Let's go into Sunday's lesson. First paragraph says, Having refuted the allegation that God was... Having refuted the allegation that his gospel is not God-given, Paul directs his attention to Galatians 2, 1 and 2 to another charge being made against him. The false teachers in Galatia claim that Paul's gospel is not in harmony with what Peter and the other apostles taught. Paul, they were saying, was a renegade. Who was saying this? Other teachers of the supposed gospel were saying this. And what was it they were citing that made Paul a renegade? He didn't require circumcision. He didn't require Jewish feasts be observed. He didn't require Jewish dress be observed. What did Paul, was there anything Paul did require to be part of the family of God, to be part of the church? Did he require anything? Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ, him crucified in the heart that we love others more than self. That's what he required. Circumcision, which was called circumcision of the heart the transformation of the inner person this is what he required why would he require that but not require the other stuff why is there a reason he required that but he didn't require say circumcision of the body changes your life the heart it does change your life and heart why would that be a requirement you're right it does why would why would having a change of heart and life be a requirement to salvation why would it be is there something wrong with our condition without it? Are we in some state of terminal decay without that change of heart? Yes. That's the requirement because without that requirement, we're dead in trespasses and we're in a terminal condition. It'd be like saying somebody's got leukemia and what we require is a bone marrow transplant. Why do we require that? Because without it, they're going to die. That's why it's required. That's the same situation with us. This is why it's required. It's the only way for us to have life. Do we have such similar obstacles today? Are there people teaching the truth about God and his kingdom of love and the importance of being healed in the inner man, having a new heart and right spirit, but have opposition, even church leaders perhaps standing up and accusing them of being renegades and disagreeing with the Bible? Well, i got to tell you, we have emails from friends all over the world, all over the world, from almost every country, telling us that they start teaching this, they often get opposition in their local church, particularly from the pastor and the church leaders. Hmm. And you tell them you have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> but the accusers, if you look, they're, they're from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Good man brings forth good, evil man brings forth evil. Musician brings forth music, mathematician brings forth math, legalist brings forth rules, condemnation, criticism. Judge not that you be not judged for the same measure you judge others to be used against you. It's not, hey, I'm keeping track, and, and if you do that, then I'm going to jot it down, and we're going to look in the record, and that's okay, this is what you deserve. No, when you judge others, you're revealing your own heart nature. You're revealing your, un, your, 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 your um, critical, your judgmental, your, your, there's no mercy, there's no compassion, you don't love in your heart. That's what you're revealing. So the only thing to be judged against you is an accurate diagnosis. We diagnose you as unconverted, untransformed, unrenewed. Your heart is still selfish. That's the diagnosis. That's the judgment. Why? Because you've just revealed it. This is design law thinking. Those who do this other thing, though, they're still on the false imposed human law construct, thinking that the rules make the difference. Let me give you some analogies. Imagine you're scuba diving, foot gets caught, your tank's running out of air, and a diver comes up is going to buddy breathe with you and give you some oxygen, give you some air. Would it matter to you if that diver was a male or a female? 
Would you care? You wouldn't. How about you're dying of an infection and the doctor comes along with an antibiotic, which will save your life. It will work. The doctor, will it matter to you whether the doctor is a male, man or a woman? It won't matter to you. Imagine you're lost in a forest and it's been days, you're dehydrated, you're hungry, you're frightened, you're lost, you don't know how to get back. A forest ranger comes along and, and will lead you to safety. Does it matter if the forest ranger is a man or a woman? Does it matter to you? Why doesn't it matter? In any of these situations, why does it not matter whether the, man, the person is a man or a woman? Why? There's a reason. Why? Because the laws in question are design laws. And gender has no bearing. You either have oxygen, you don't have oxygen. You get an antibiotic, you don't. You either get let out of the lost into the found, or you don't. It's just reality. That's why. What about when we take the gospel to the world? Why is the church still saying only men can be ordained? Seriously, think about it. Why? Are we taking a message of reality that heals hearts and minds? Why can men only be ordained to do that? Only female scuba diver, sorry, you need to drown. Why do you have to be ordained to take the message? You don't, but why does the church, this is my point, why does the church say only ordained people can be men? Why? Because it's not about the healing gospel. It's not about taking a message. It's not about bringing oxygen. What it's about, it's about power and control. It's about power. Who's going to control the power? That's what it's about. Jesus gave us a parable to illustrate this problem. Let's give it. Parable of the Good Samaritan. We could give the same parable today and replace the Samaritan with a woman. All the ordained pastors and conference leaders and, and general conference committee members walk by on the other side and a woman helps him. Again, if you notice in the parable, what kind of laws? Design laws, laws of health. His health has been compromised and you bring healing or you don't. But notice in the parable, some very profound lessons here. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, the actors, we have several actors. We have a Levite, we have a priest, we have an injured man, and we have a Samaritan. And in Jewish culture, the Samaritan was righteous or an unrighteous person in their idea. Unrighteous. Now, in this context, it would be understood, but I want you to answer the questions. In this context, who would it be understood was a Sabbath keeper? Priest, Levite. How about the Samaritan? Who would it be understood sacrificed the proper sacrifices at the temple? Priest and Levite. Who paid their tithe? Who ate the right foods? Who was circumcised on the eighth day? Okay? Who didn't do any of that stuff? Who was considered right with God? Get your mind around that, people. This is why it angered them so much. They hated what Jesus was teaching. You will find institutional leaders today don't like what we're teaching. Because we're teaching healing hearts and minds. They're teaching loyalty to an institution. When we place doctrines as a false test of fellowship, or a test of fellowship, separated from what they say about God. Notice I didn't say doctrines don't have a place. They have a place. But they're always connected to informing us about God. That's the key. You know, life eternal is is that you might have the correct 28 fundamental beliefs. Life eternal is that you might have the right doctrines. Life eternal is you might be baptized in the proper way. Life eternal is that you might take communion in the right way. Life eternal is that know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So the doctrines are important as they inform us about God. That's their key importance. But when we send them up as standalone doctrines, proof texts by themselves, make that truth the truth that displaces the central truth, like we gave you the example a moment ago, 
then we actually obstruct people from knowing God and slow the gospel. Bottom green section asks, what are some issues that threaten the church unity today? More important, after we define them, how can we deal with them? What issues are more important than unity itself? Evidently, uh, many people seem to think there's a lot of things more important than unity. Power, authority, orthodoxy, protecting history, protecting perceived prestige of the institution, correcting, correct definitions of doctrines, and many more. The list goes on. But love is more important than unity. Thank because you. Because unity can be a bad unity. You can have a whole group of people unified the against or for something, and it can be totally wrong. So what is another Bible word for unity? Thank you. At one meant atonement. At one meant this is the this is what the day of atonement was. It was about bringing unity, harmony. Well, Ephesians one nine and ten, and he made known to us the mystery of his will. I'm going to pause right there. The mystery. Why? Why is God's will a mystery to us? Why was it a mystery that needed to be made known? What caused it to be a mystery? Was God secretive? Was he holding it back? Was he trying to hide his will from us? And boy, Jesus, Jesus, you know, he found it out and he came to tell us because God didn't want us to know. Is that what happened? How, why is it a mystery that needed to be revealed? What made it, what, 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 okay, darkness covers the people, a gross darkness the people. A light has come into the world to lighten all men. Lightness about what? What causes our mind to not comprehend God's will that made it mysterious to us? Satan's views of God, his lies about God that have been accepted and taught in religions around the world. This has made God's will mysterious to us. And so he's made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, he was happy to do it, which he purposed in Christ. It was his purpose for Christ to come. If you see me, you've seen the Father, you'll know my will. To be put into effect, his will will be put into when the times reach their fulfillment. We talk about time prophecy and fulfilling of that, but we don't have time for that today. Now notice, what the, notice the mystery of his will. Here's his purpose. Here's his goal. Here's what's been hidden. To bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. Unity bringing us all together. This is his will. This is what he's been purposing. This is what he's been trying to accomplish. It's a mystery to us. Why is it a mystery? Because we're still stuck at level four. And we think it actually, and so we divide. How much energy is done in evangelism that rather than bringing people into unity causes further division? Monday's lesson. First paragraph. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant relationship that God established with Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. Of what was circumcision a sign? Of what? The covenant. Okay, what's the covenant? The promise. What, the promise? Promise of deliverance. From? Which is? Caused by? (laughs) I like what you said. What did you say? Sin is? A condition of the heart that causes the separation from God. It's a, it's a condition of being. Yes, that's exactly right. What was the importance of circumcision of the body? What was the importance? Circumcision is cutting away of the flesh. So we cut away trying to save ourselves by our own works, our works of the flesh, and we depend on God. I like where you're going with that. Circumcision. We're talking about circumcision of the body. You're already leading us into circumcision of the heart. We're about to get to. Can a, 
Could a person in Old Testament times be saved by circumcision? No. <laughs> no, the answer is no. That's exactly right. Come on, people. Tune in last week's class. Okay. Naaman, Nebuchadnezzar, the patriarchs, Melchizedek, there's no evidence that these guys were circumcised, but there's good evidence that they were saved. So was circumcision then required for Jewish males to be saved? But not for others. Good, good. Because if you said yes, then you would say, are there two paths of salvation? No, there's one path of salvation. So no, it wasn't required for them either. So it wasn't required for salvation... For the Jews either, then what, what was it required? Why? What, to do what? To achieve what? To be a member of the acting troop known as Israel. Anybody who became part of Abraham's family, Abraham's, even people, slaves that he brought in, if you're going to be part of the troop, you're going to be on stage, you've got to actually wear the costume. Okay? Mary in the tribe. To be part of the tribe, that's right. To be part of the troop known as Israel. Act out the plan of salvation in theater, in symbol. And perhaps there was also an additional reason that God used this particular intervention. And that is, if you look at the history of Israel, particularly the males of Israel were constantly being seduced into fertility cult worship. Constantly. It's, It's all through Old Testament scripture. And fertility cult worship, do you know how the worship service went? You got intoxicated with liquid spirits rather than the Holy Spirit. And you picked out a cult prostitute and you went in and you had close relations with them. This was your worship experience. You can see why it was well attended. It was an offering. <laughs> it was a sacrament. It was literally an offering. Yes, this is what it was considered, okay? Perhaps God, in his foreknowledge, understanding the difficulties they would face, gave them this final barrier of protection as they approached the cult prostitute and she says, Well, I can see you're Jewish. <laughs> Perhaps they would go, maybe I should be worshiping Yahweh instead of Ashtoreth or Baal. Perhaps. Perhaps it was added protection to get them to think. Well, that's the most reasonable explanation I've ever heard for circumcision. (laughs) The Bible tells us that circumcision of the body is not required for salvation. But there is a circumcision that is required for salvation. What is that circumcision? Of the heart. Now, are there any physical, you know what typology is? Where one symbol represents some other larger reality? Like all the feast days and all the sacrifices are types. For instance, the lamb slain is a type of Christ, okay? But it's not Christ. It's just a symbol representing Christ. Is, is there a, 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 something about this, the, the actual circumcision that they went through that teaches lessons about the reality of the real circumcision? Well, let me ask you some questions. When you're on the street looking at people, can you tell who's been circumcised or not? When you're on the street looking at people, can you tell who's had circumcision of their heart or not? If you get to a certain level of intimacy with a person, can you then tell if they've been circumcised or not? Yes, you can. You might, you might not be their lover. You might be their doctor. Okay? But you have a certain level of intimacy before you know. Do you have, if you get to a certain level of intimacy with a person, can you tell if their heart's been circumcised or not? Yes, you can. It requires intimacy to know. You can't tell from the outside. Um, is circumcision of the body painful? Yes. Yes. Is circumcision of the heart painful? Yes, it is. Is circumcision of the body less painful when we're younger? The younger we are, the less pain. Is circumcision of the heart less painful the younger we are? Because we have less habits of sin, less rebelliousness, less history of wickedness to repent from. 
Less attachments to the world we have to give up. Less addictions we have to get over the younger we are when our heart is cut away from those things. I think there's a a typology here that can teach us some very important things. Well, you might go, wait a second, you're trying to tell us that Old Testament circumcision of the body really wasn't necessary. What about Moses? Why did Moses end up in a confrontation with God because his son hadn't been circumcised? I know somebody was thinking that, right? (laughs) You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Angel coming to kill? Yes. Okay. It was theater, guys. Theater. If somebody's about to go out on stage and you're the director and you have a play and you have a script and the script is going to teach certain things that you as the director who's written the script want to be understood and you've got an actor that's about to go out on stage and he's not going to wear the right costume and he's not going to stay on script and he's going to go off and do his own thing, are you going to let him go out on stage if you have the option? Or are you going to say, nope, you're off stage. You can't go out. We've got to have somebody who's going to stay on script. It's theater. This is theater. Now, if you actually read the text in Exodus chapter 4, verse 24, almost all translations translate that God was coming to kill Moses. The Hebrew doesn't say that. The Hebrew simply uses the pronoun him. He's coming to kill him. It's, and, and, the, and the translators stick Moses in, but if you read the context, in the very next phrase, therefore, the, angels, the, the Lord is coming to kill him, and therefore his mother circumcised him. And the Lord didn't kill him. Read it, read, read it in, in Exodus 4, 24. So I think it's probably more likely that the hymn referred to was not Moses, but Moses' son. Because Moses' son was the one who was off script. He hadn't been circumcised. Moses was on script. Moses' son was off script. And the mother realized, hey, let's get him in. You might say, he was out of costume. And the mother said, let's put him in costume. As soon as he's in costume, he's good. He can go out now. He can go on stage. This is really what I think is happening. You have to remember also in Bible times, Bible times, Bible terminology in God's perspective, first death is not death. Those who believe in me will never die, Jesus said, but sleep. That's all it is, sleep. They're going to come up. So Moses was about to become a leader in Israel, and he was given instructions, be given instructions on the salvation and theater to a bunch of rebellious, hard-hearted people, what would have happened to the lessons God was going to give through Moses had Moses and his family not followed the script themselves? Moses had a hard enough time following the script himself, getting the people to take his leadership. What would have happened if he wasn't doing it? So I also think, though, this story demonstrates that Moses understood that there was nothing of salvation value in circumcision. Remember, Moses was... Think, think contextually here. Moses has been talking God face to face at the bush already. The burning bush has already happened. He's already been talking to God. He's not rebelling against God. He's wanting to do God's purposes and God's will, and God sees this in him. Do you really think he's going to, from a rebelliousness and a defiance and self-centeredness, not do this? No, he understood circumcision was merely theater. It wasn't necessary for salvation, but as he's about to go into Egypt to bring the people out and put them on stage, God couldn't have this theatrical confusion. But now see, and you're explaining this. I've been an Adventist my whole life, okay? I've never heard the Israelite situation presented as a theater. Wasn't it? But all my life, I've thought of God as cruel and punishing like he was going to kill the kid just because he wasn't circumcised. I mean, that is ridiculous. And that's why people who haven't studied 
don't understand a loving God because they don't see it as a theater. They see it as a punishing God. But it was. They had a, they had a, they had a cool stage. They had neat costumes. They had a script they had to follow. Some, some people call it scripture. But it was a script. Well, I've never heard that before until this class. I'm sorry. But does it make sense? Not really. It does in a way make sense, but in a way it doesn't. Put it together with Hebrews in the New Testament. Is there anything salvation benefit of any of the ritualistic stuff of the Old Testament? Put it together with what Paul says about circumcision. Why, if circumcision was necessary for salvation, then why didn't it be required in the New Testament? It's not necessary. What is necessary is what it pointed toward. Same thing with the animal sacrifices. It says in Hebrews that the conscience of the worshipers could not be cleansed, and no one is saved by sacrifices of bulls and goats. It's all theater. It's all symbolic. That's what it is. Yes? Any social order uh, has to have orderly development. And so, as I see the theater, you know, that was, that was a very interesting and, and compelling way for people to learn. You know, as opposed to being hit over the head, you know, with, with the rules right from the beginning. This is, there was the acting out drama. That's right. So what about, it was designed to get them to think. Why are we doing this? What does this mean? Now, back to the question of circumcision. Do you see why when Paul didn't require it, why some of the Judaizers who had been, were so upset? They were really upset by this, but he didn't require it. Do we have parallels in our church today or Christianity today? What about any doctrine that promotes sectarianism, i.e., that this doctrine, that, excuse me, that it really matters what denomination you belong to. If you don't belong to this denomination or that denomination, then you can't be saved. You're saved by denominational, organizational affiliation. That's how we get saved. And then we create doctrines that become tests of organizational affiliation. Thus, what makes our organization unique is we have this doctrine and this doctrine and this doctrine, and if you don't attest to these doctrines, then if you don't get circumcised in the body, if you don't uh, keep the feast days, blah, 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 you're not part of the right organization. You can't be saved. This is what Paul was combating in his day. The same dynamic is happening today, and I hear it from Seventh-day Adventists. I'm not trying to pick on the Adventists, but I hear it from certain segments in the Adventist church that it's all about which day you go to church on. And if you don't go to church on the right day, you can't be saved. You, for those of you who, do, who think that, Ellen White never wrote that. She, this is not true. Jesus says he has sheep from every flock. Yes, yes, he does. Thank you. Tuesday's lesson. The lesson talks about freedom that we're to have in Christ. And the first paragraph says, Freedom, as a description of, the, of Christian experience, is an important concept for Paul. He uses the word more frequently than any other author in the New Testament did. And in the book of Galatia, Galatians, the word free and freedom occur numerous times. Freedom, however, for the Christian means freedom in Christ. It is the opportunity to live a life of unhindered devotion to God. It involves freedom from being enslaved by the desires of our sinful nature, freedom from the condemnation of the law, and freedom from the power of death. So these Bible promises of freedom, what law lens do you hear them through? If you hear them through the old imposed human law construct, how are these Bible promises of the freedom we have in Christ often taught? We're freed from the condemnation of the death sentence because of sin that is to be executed by the eternal judge on all the unrepentant sinners because the law has condemned us to death. But those who accept the perfect blood payment of Jesus satisfies the law and he can now pardon us. 
that we are freed from the imposed punishment of eternal death, so we won't have eternal death, so we're freed from the condemnation. And we are also freed from the execution of that, the eternal death, because Jesus paid that death penalty, we've accepted it. And then one day, at the second coming, when this mortal puts on immortality and we are glorified, then we get victory over the temptations and our sinful nature. This is how it's often taught. What's the truth under design law? Then we accept the truth about God first. We open our hearts, and God's Spirit enters, and we actually become partakers of the divine nature, as Peter wrote. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me, as Paul wrote. The law gets written on the heart and mind. We get new heart motives, new desires, new, new, a new heart. The heart of stone is removed. The heart of flesh is put in. We actually become new people. The old is gone. The new has come. Transformation happens here and now in a mortal body. This is victory over the desires because the desires are replaced with new desires of love. And then we are not condemned by the law because now we are renewed to be in harmony with the law of love. So when the law looks at us, it doesn't see our old sinful self. It sees the new character of Christ that's been reproduced within us. That's why we're not condemned. And we have victory over death because we've been healed from the terminal condition that causes death. Questions about that? I know there's got to be some questions about that. Does that make sense? Do you see the difference? The other view, that legal view, it actually puts into people's mind the idea that their security is in legal adjustments and record books. And they don't even desire, they don't even seek, they don't even pursue, they don't even participate in transformation. They don't even expect it. In fact, they're told not to expect it. You'll sin right up to the day Christ comes. How many have heard that? Don't expect transformation. And, and, and sin is, by the way, it's all behavioral. It's all the thing, because you can't be perfect. You're still going to make mistakes. You're still going to come up short. You can't be perfect because they're making per- perfection based on do's and don'ts, behavior, rather than Bible perfection, which is, what's Bible perfection? Trust and love, a mature character. I trust God with the outcomes, and I love him. That's Bible perfection. Thus, describing those ready for translation, Revelation chapter 12, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. They're not afraid. They're like Stephen. Hey, I'll stand up for the truth even if they stone me. They're like the martyrs who died in the arena. They're going to sing hymns as the lions are eating them. Why? Because something changed in them. They love God and others more than self. That's Bible perfection. We have no record that those people who died in the arena or Stephen didn't spill soup on his chin. Make mistakes. And that's the problem with much of the legal view. It's all about your behavior. Yes? A couple questions about the um, freedom from desires. Yes. Um, when Christ, just before his crucifixion, said, the devil is coming, there's nothing in here that attracts me to him or something like that. Thing. Okay. So you can see that he had no desires for what Satan had to present. And yet he had extreme desires in Gethsemane that were tempting him. Yes. He was not free from desires. He was. Well, after Gethsemane, you saw he had peace the rest of the weekend. After Gethsemane, but during Gethsemane, yep. he had desires that were tempting him. Because, because that was his mission. His mission was to win that victory that we couldn't win over those desires. He had to face them, and he had to choose with his human brain, his human mind, his humanity, had to choose not to give in to those, thus destroying that very, the very source of those desires. And that's what he destroyed at the cross. 
And thus we don't have to face that battle alone with those desires. He faced it alone. He didn't have help. That's why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't have the, the indwelling spirit to give him strength and to give him comfort. He was doing it all alone in human strength. His human strength. We could never win that. Because of his victory in our behalf, as we trust him, we get the indwelling spirit that gives us new desires and divine power to overcome the temptations. So we will face similar temptations, but we will never have to confront them alone. Yeah. The difference in, in what we're talking about um, between these two concepts today, to me, means that the image it is, it is demeaning to the not only God, but to the image of God in man to say that we are, com- we are totally controlled by rules or by uh, human effort. And, you know, the whole idea of uh, depending on, on imposed law as opposed to natural law. But it's, see, it's safer for people who still are at level four to believe that. But the, in that whole construct, if you ask, what does it say about God? God is the one we must fear. And most of the doctrines then set up functionally to do this. The doctrines function to hide us or protect us from God. We're covered by the robe, he can't see us. The blood payment is covering our, our record books so the sins are erased. Um, Jesus stands as our mediator to plead to the Father so the Father won't kill us. The functional doctrines in that false view always are hiding us from God rather than the biblical model that David prayed, Father, search me and see what's wrong and fix it. Heal me, create in me a new heart and right spirit. This is the true gospel. Yeah. I find it completely fascinating and scary that as soon as we get a taste of the truth and we feel that joy, that freedom, the freedom that you're talking about, we feel the liberty, and it's joyful. We immediately feel guilty for it um, because we think, oh, well, I've already, there must be another reason or a way, some task I have to do to get to heaven. So you feel guilty, and then you feel like the guilt is actually maybe the Holy Spirit telling you you're going the wrong way, and people give up. They go back to the rules. And I find that completely scary and fascinating. I think that's a process. It is false guilt, not based on truth. It's based on human insecurity. It's based on doubt. I think it's based on a partial comprehension of the truth, but not fully yet. I think it's just the dawning enlightenment of of the reality of design law, but still having vestiges of the imposed law so deeply embedded that we're reacting to it still, and we simply need to progress in the truth more. And as we see the truth more, we realize it would be like it's just a conditioned response, if you will. So, yeah. Flipping a light switch, and sometimes we feel like it is, but it's still working. Had imposed a law. Yes, they did. It, I mean, it was the Ten Commandments. It was the laws of the uh, kosher and all that stuff. And the, the circumcision was maybe your your badge or your. Yes, that's right. And, and remember, in the scripture in the New Testament, it said that uh, they didn't. Uh, uh, they didn't require, was it Titus to be circumcised? Is that right? Was it Titus? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he didn't have to be circumcised. But they had spies there. Imagine if you were on the committee to find out whether Titus had been circumcised or not. <laughs> okay. I mean, they talked about that in the New Testament. I'm making that up. Jesus broke all that And that's why he, you know, that's why Paul kept saying, you don't have to follow these laws. So, so Wednesday's lesson, let's just try to get the last couple minutes here on Wednesday's lesson. This is the issue of Paul confronting Peter when Peter pulls back and doesn't associate with the Gentiles anymore. Having been social, when the Judaizers show up, Peter pulls back and, and then Paul confronts him publicly. Um, do we learn some lessons from this? First off, was Peter wrong? 
Peter? Was Peter wrong? Yes. To pull back, and was and and he needed to be corrected. Yes or no? Yes. Yes. Okay. Was his error on this issue? And it was an issue. It was a church issue. It was a spiritual community issue. It was a uh, uh, who's 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 righteous and who's not righteous issue. Pulling back and basing it on on externals rather than internals. Heart change. And so this is a this is a church issue that he was wrong on. It's not like oh he's he's sewing the the nets on the on the fishing line wrong. This is it. I just want to point out that what he's wrong on is a church issue. Yes or no? Yes. Okay. Was his error on this issue before or after he experienced the gift of the Holy Spirit? At Pentecost, what some might call the gift of prophecy. <laughs> After. Does this mean that because he was wrong on this issue that he was not inspired? No. Does it mean that his writings, First and Second Peter, are not inspired? What does this tell us about how inspiration in the Holy Spirit work? Yes, Wendell? Does it mean that his behavior necessarily was wrong? If you go back to 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul says, for the poor, I was poor. For the legal, I was legal. For the Gentile, I was a Gentile. Yes, yes, in this context, he was wrong. Yes, he was wrong. Because he wasn't trying to reach these Judaizers. He was actually... Yeah, correct. But here you have the same behavior that is in one situation correct behavior, and another situation is not correct behavior. Yes, so what made it wrong... Wasn't the necessarily behavior itself, but in what was intended to do by the behavior. Right. That's what he was trying to accomplish, and that was what was wrong. So he was wrong on this issue. So when a person is inspired by the Holy Spirit, does that mean they are now perfect, sinless, and never make any mistakes again, and never get any Bible issues wrong? No. This is very important. What about Ellen White? She had to grow like everybody else. Many people believe she was inspired. Does that mean she was correct on every issue? Did she claim to be correct on every issue? Did she make that claim? She did not. In fact, she actually said, if you find anything in my writings that disagree with Scripture, go with the Scripture. What is that allowing for the possibility of? Okay, she, she, she says only God and heaven are infallible. All humans are fallible. Okay. Do some in the Seventh-day Adventist Church hold Ellen White up almost as an icon and use her writings as, as a litmus test of orthodoxy? Does a person have to accept the writings of Ellen White to be saved? Can a person deny that she even was inspired and still be saved? Why then the hard line that some people take in the Adventist Church on her writings? Because they're more concerned about the institution and what it means for the institution than about the saving of souls. Now, I have by asking now have I by asking these questions? And pointing out a person like Peter can be inspired and still be wrong on some issues, have I stated my personal belief on whether I believe Ellen White was inspired or not? Have I stated it? No. So don't 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 draw conclusions I haven't stated one way or the other. Many people argue over the issue, and I'm going to tell you it's a pointless argument. Pointless. And it's an argument that causes division. It's another one of those division making arguments. And I'll tell you here's why it's and here's how you deal with it. If people ever come up and say, Do you believe Ellen White is inspired or not? It doesn't matter. Why? Because the Bible says that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14. What does that mean? That only through the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit can a sinful human being comprehend the things of God. Yes or no? Yes. Only through the light. So, to whatever degree any human being communicates truth of God's kingdom, whether it's Peter, Paul, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, Ellen White, Billy Graham, 
Tim Jennings, anybody communicates any truth from God's kingdom, they're only doing it because the Holy Spirit gave them light on that. They can't do it on their own. It's a moot point. The question is not what she inspired. The question is what did she write? Is it true and does it agree with Scripture? That's the question. And that's the same question you should ask with, with Calvin's writings and Luther's writings and, and uh, Billy Graham's writings and Max Licato's writings. You should be asking, is what they're writing true? It's really irrelevant whether they have inspiration from the Holy Spirit in some special way or not. It's not really relevant. Why do people want that, though? Here's why. Because they're level four and below and they're mature. And the immature are afraid to make decisions for themselves. They're afraid to think for themselves. And they want to feel secure. And how do you feel secure? You feel secure when somebody in authority gives you the answer. And so, Dad, who's right? Mom, um, referee, umpire, so make a ruling, judge, uh, uh, pastor, uh, general conference committee, uh, 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 the, the pope, uh, somebody, Sister White, somebody, somebody, Sister White, she's got the, she's the ultimate authority. Let's turn to her. If we find it in her writings, then we can be secure. We do not have to understand. We do not have to think. We just take it. This is why people do this. Because they don't want to mature and grow up. It's scary. I have many patients who do this, not on spirituals, just in life. They don't want to take the responsibility to make decisions. So they're constantly looking for somebody else to tell them the right answer. Tell me what to do. Should I do this? Should I do that? Take this job, not get this. I'm afraid. Afraid I might take the wrong career. What career should I do in college? I don't know if I should major in this or I should major in that. I don't know. I'm scared. Maybe I make the wrong choice. What happens if I make the wrong choice? I don't want to, I don't want to make a mistake. And they live in fear. Same process. And by the way, this division is what the Bible warned against. 1 Corinthians 11, 1, 11 through 13. My brothers, some of you from Chloe's house have informed me that there is quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul. The other says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Cephas. Another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Some say, I follow Luther. Some say, I follow Calvin. Some say, I follow Wesley. Some say, I follow White. What? You see the division? We have the same problem. We need to be following Jesus Christ, who said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And this is how the Father works. My kingdom doesn't work like this systems of the world work. And if our church is working like a systems of the world with arbitrary rules and authoritarian dictatorship-like qualities rather than working on design law to bring healing to hearts and minds, then it's not part of the kingdom. God's kingdom doesn't work that way. And that's what Martin Luther was protesting. That's what we're protesting. And we're trying to, to send a message that brings healing to hearts and minds and brings us back under one head, even Jesus Christ. And gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who is love and who created your universe to operate on the principles of truth, love, and freedom. And, and we thank you so much that you sent Christ to reveal the mystery, the, the mystery of your will that you, could, you purposed in him to achieve to bring all of us back into that unity that was hidden, hidden in the darkness of Satan's lies and still struggling to be seen today. We ask that you will enlighten our minds, plant the truth deep in our hearts and characters help us to be like you and empower us to go and share this healing message effectively so that others that are still stuck in that in that other way of thinking can be set free we pray in your holy name amen, amen.